All right. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> I just well, that wasn't reciprocated at all. It was a very empty feeling. Good morning. Oh, so good to see you. If this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life East. Joy to have you in our house. Uh, a couple things I got to tell you about before we preach this morning. Uh, first of all, uh, Rory mentioned our Easter services coming up next weekend. So do. Uh, make sure to tell everybody you know. And let's fill up the house of God for the services. It'll be really great to be together. The weekend after that is Baptism Sunday. Yay! And so you've probably heard me say <coughs> in the last couple years here at New Life Church, we have, uh, across all of our congregations, uh, we have baptized over 700 people in the last two years, which is crazy. Book of Acts says that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And it seems to me that the Lord is continuing that work daily. We're seeing people come to the knowledge and love of the Lord. So if the Lord has been doing a work in your life the last season and you've never taken the plunge, never entered the waters of baptism, this is your moment. So just make sure to let one of us on staff know and we'll get you all set up for that. That's the first thing I've got to say. Second thing I've got to say, ladies and gentlemen, it's a very special day. It's not only Palm Sunday, but it is also Jenna Stoddard's birthday today. Can we sing to Jenna? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy, we're waving palm branches. Dear Jenna, (laughs) happy birthday to you. One more time, give it up. So good. Well, Welcome to church. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, I do love Palm Sunday. Uh, It's such a beautiful day. There's a note of celebration that we strike on Palm Sunday, which we did this morning, waving the palm branches back and forth. And I like it so much because of kind of it's like where it sits in the church calendar. So Lent is like this. The season that we've been in is the season of Lent. The run up to Easter is Lent, which is a season where Jesus pivots towards his passion Even in the Gospels, the narrative gets a little bit darker. So the season feels like a dark season. And uh, so that's Lent. And then, of course, Good Friday is like this deep, deep darkness where the Son of God himself from the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as dark as it gets on Good Friday. But right between those two things, Lent and Palm Sunday, there is like this thrust of celebration and joy and levity and light. And that's Palm Sunday. That's what this is. And so I love uh, Palm Sunday for that uh, reason. This is the book of Luke chapter 19. Now, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this moment of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Here's Luke's version of it. Luke chapter 19, verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. The scripture says that as Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany, At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say that the Lord needs it. And so those who went sent ahead and found it uh, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put uh, Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Just like we did this morning, all the thanksgiving that we offered up for the miracles that we've seen in the lives of these people. And this is what they said. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Everybody say peace. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he said to them, I tell you that if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, O Lord, our God, for sending your son to us, Jesus, the Lord the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He was made flesh for us and for our salvation, born incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, made truly human for us. He came as a king. He lived among us, worked miracles, taught us. He suffered and he died with us and he was raised to life again on the third day. Thank God for Jesus, our Savior. We pray that this morning... As we open the text of Scripture here and as we meditate on it, we ask that the living voice of Jesus himself would speak. The Holy Spirit says in the book of Hebrews, see that you don't refuse the one who still speaks. Jesus, we believe that you just didn't speak 2,000 years ago, but you're the living word. You're talking to us now, you're calling us now, you're drawing us in the kingdom now. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you. But importantly, we also pray that you would give us hearts to understand what you're saying to us and bodies that are willing to follow you where you lead us to go. So come and save our lives, we pray this morning. That's what we're calling upon you to do. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said... Amen. Palm Sunday, what's going on here? This crowd of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, what is happening? Well, this moment in the Gospels uh, takes place during the Jewish feast of the Passover, which if you don't know anything about that, is basically like the Jewish equivalent of our 4th of July. So Passover was when the people of God remembered the great deliverance of Israel up out of Egypt. It was this sort of feast of national liberation which is really what our 4th of July is, right? We're remembering that moment when we broke free from the empire and we established that we were going to be our own country. So it's similar in that respect, but I think there's a couple important differences. One, the religious side of it, obviously, for the Jews is much greater than it is for us in America. For the Jews, it was like God that did this thing for them. But then also you might consider what the 4th of July would be like for us if we had an occupying power over us in the United States. So say we were actually under the thumb of another country. So then if you celebrate 4th of July, you're not just looking backwards in gratitude for that moment when you broke away, but where are you also looking? Forwards. Yeah, you're looking forwards to that day when some liberation like what happened then happens again and you get to have your freedom. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that part of what would signal the oncoming new advent of God's freedom is that a Messiah figure would arise, a new king would come to Israel. And of course, Jesus had been doing his thing for three years, and there were rumors about that Jesus was potentially the new king in Israel. So when Jesus starts approaching Jerusalem on this day, 
all these folks gather around him and they put him on a donkey and they basically say, this is it. And he actually is the one that sits on the donkey. So it's like his way of saying, I actually am your king. And so you can imagine what it was like. Furthermore, at the time of Passover, Jews from all across the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean basin would gather together for this feast and the city would swell from something like 35,000 people to a quarter million to as many as half a million, depending on which scholar you talk to. So you can imagine this city that has all of this fervor of anticipation about what God is going to do. Now they see this messianic figure and they go nuts. And listen to what they say again. This is verse 38 of the same chapter. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. Everybody say peace again. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I want to say to you this morning that when they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest because of the coming of Jesus, they're not wrong to say this. Peace is the very thing that they should say when Jesus comes because of who he is. And the Old Testament resounds with the theme. Listen to this, Psalm 122. The psalmist says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. That's what we do every time we gather. I rejoice with those who said, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the psalmist said, is built like a city that's closely compacted together. And that's where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the, of Jerusalem, may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels for the sake of your, my family and friends. I will say... Peace be within you, right? Three times in three verses, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Now, the question is, when we talk about peace in the biblical mind, like what is it that we're talking about? Um, And so like 21st century United States of America, the culture that we live in, when we say peace, more often than not, what we're referring to is the absence of something. So it's like the absence of noise and clamor and all of that. How how many moms do we have in the room here this morning? Would you just give me a little peace and quiet, right? And then what do you do? You lock yourself in the bathroom for three hours, right? Or however long it is. What are you looking for? You're looking for tranquility, repose. You're trying to gather your mind up. And peace in the biblical mind definitely includes that. But it's so much greater than that. Actually, a better image to think about what the Bible writers mean when they talk about peace is like, Uh, Think back to like the last time uh, you had like a really good meal with people that you love. Maybe it's your friends, you got some close friends, or your family, and you feasted on this food, and then all of a sudden you're kind of leaning back in your chair and you're looking at one another, and the conversation has been good and words have been exchanged that are healthy, wholesome, healing, good words, and there's like this sense of like, ah. This is so right. This is how things are supposed to be. And you know how you have an ache in that moment that that moment would never end? If we could just freeze it right here, that would be ideal. That's what the scriptures are referring to when they talk about the peace of God. That it's everything being put together just like God intends. And that sense of well-being that you have because things are rightly ordered. Another way of talking about that is just the kingdom of God. (laughs) That's what the kingdom is. The kingdom isn't us being whisked out of this place, but it's God establishing that comprehensive well-being on planet 
earth. And in the New Testament, this is the point to grasp, that in the New Testament, the coming of Jesus was always heralded as the inauguration of God's peace, that peace that the psalmist prayed for. It actually happens in Jesus. Here's Zacchaeus prophesying as he's holding his young baby, John the Baptist, in his arms. He says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's what Jesus does, is that he actually brings this shalom, this peace, and then he guides us into it. Or the angels said at the birth of Jesus, Luke chapter 2, we always read this at Christmas time. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so when the crowds cry out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want to say to you this morning that they are speaking rightly because peace is the promise of the gospel. And Jesus is God's peace in person. And when we meet him, we are meeting that great gesture of God by which the world is put back together. And I got to tell you, I love this. I love this about Jesus. That the salvation that Jesus brings to our life is not just some abstract salvation that happens over our heads. But the salvation that he brings to our life is a salvation that actually impacts our lives as they are. In the things that we care about. And this was always the case in the Gospels, that wherever Jesus went, things got better. (laughs) The blind saw and the deaf heard and the lame person leapt for joy. And those that walked in darkness are walking in light. And those that have been excluded are brought to the middle. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the presence of God's peace. And I've seen this so often. I think of some of the great stories of Jesus putting life back together that I've had the privilege to be part of. I remember pastoring and my first associate pastor job was at a church in Oklahoma years and years ago. This was back in 2008, I think. And we got a phone call one day at the church offices from a gal who was part of our church. And she was in the midst of some bizarre health crisis. Didn't know what was going on. Doctors couldn't put their finger on it. And we went to the hospital and we sat with her and we prayed over her. And over the next couple of weeks, she got a little bit better, enough that she was able to get out of the hospital, and she's home trying to put her life back together. And then all of a sudden, the thing, the thing recurred. It happened again. She's back in the hospital, and she calls us, and we go to the hospital, and we pray for her. And this cycle went on and on and on. She'd do just a little bit better and get out of the hospital. And then all of a sudden, she's back in the hospital. And over the course of many months, it just took this awful toll on her life. She eventually, she couldn't do, the, she couldn't do her work at her job, so she lost her job relationships went sideways. She emptied out her bank account trying to figure out what's going on here, paying the medical bills. It was just awful. And I remember just those times praying with her, pleading with God, God, would you please intervene and put this woman's life back together? Her name was Lisa. And we moved in September of 2009, we moved to Denver to help some friends plant a church. And Lisa had been in the midst of one of those cycles. And I just lost track of her, lost track of how she was doing. Several years went by, and this was maybe, this was Easter season of 2013, maybe 2014. So five or six years had gone by. And I'm preaching at the church in Denver that we helped plan in the basement of this little Baptist church where we met. Got the communion table in front of me, chairs all around. And I'm preaching on the resurrection, the power of Jesus to put our lives back together again, you know. 
And as I'm preaching, I look on the back row and I see a face I hadn't seen in five or six years. It's her, Lisa, in front of my eyes. And I remember I was so astonished by it. If I'd been sitting on a stool, I guess I would have fallen right off. I could not believe what I was seeing. So I wrap up the message real quick and led us to the table. And we did the docs and the doxology and the benediction. Docs and Benny is what we call them here. Docs and Benny, we got through all of that. And I made a beeline over to Lisa. I said, Lisa, I haven't seen you in years. And you look amazed. What is going on? And she said, Andrew, Jesus put my life back together. She said, shortly after you left, all of a sudden my health started rebounding. Everything came back together again. And she said, and now I'm married and I'm living up here in the mountains. And I've got this amazing job and amazing home and this husband, and my health is finally intact. Jesus did it. (laughs) But that's it. And he does that. He does that. Because he cares about Lisa. So he pours out his spirit on Lisa. And he takes the scattered pieces of Lisa's life. He goes, here, I know what to do with that. Here, let me put that back together. For you, a friend reminded me of this recently. And I was thinking about it recently. I remember us leaving our church in Denver. And I remember saying farewell to that whole thing. And I've told you this before. I wanted to be there forever. And it just wasn't in the cards. And I'll never forget the emptiness that I felt inside around that. God, this meant so much to me. Why is it that you're leading on this path, us on this path now? It doesn't make sense to me. And I remember the last walk around our house in Denver that I took after we packed up everything, put it all in the moving truck. And I took a pass through there to make sure we didn't leave anything behind and also in my own kind of way to say goodbye to that life that we loved. And I remember the emotion starting to well up inside of me as I was walking around the house and I got down into what had been my study, my office, which was, that was where so much, for me anyway, that was where so much of the church happened. It's a place of encounter with God, hearing the voice of God, trying to figure out how to lead, writing sermons down there, the whole thing. And I remember when I got down into my office, I just broke and wept and wept and wept and wept. And I remember laying on the floor saying to God, God, I wasn't done. I just wasn't done. And I don't know what this next season is going to mean but I wasn't done doing this. And I was flying back. I was out, at, out in North Carolina at a little ministry thing this past week. And I was on the plane and I was actually, I was listening to a song that we're about to sing in a little bit here, The Son of Suffering, how Jesus comes and he takes our sorrows and he gives us a new life. And I was listening to that song on the plane. And I got to tell you guys, I started thinking back to the last six years since we've been here And on the plane, you ever had this happen to you on the plane where you have an emotional moment on the plane? All of a sudden, you know, my face is red and tears are streaming down my face. It's a packed flight on Southwest. And I'm looking around hoping that nobody is noticing me saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I never could have imagined the life that you have given us here. But you you saw it. You saw it. When I was laying on my face weeping, you saw it. When I was full of agony about like I wasn't done, I had more to do, I've got more in me to accomplish, you saw all of that. The psalmist said, you've set my feet in a spacious place. (laughs) You rescued me because you delighted in me. And the psalmist gives thanks to God, not because God is some abstract, excellent deity, 
but because God did something for him. That's why you're here. It's because somewhere along the line, you were in the ditch. Somewhere along the line, your life was falling apart. Somewhere along the line, you didn't know left from right, up from down. Somewhere along the line, you were out of your depth. You couldn't put it back together. And Jesus found you. These testimonies that we saw here, it's an evidence of that. Guys, Isaiah put it so beautifully, Isaiah 26, 12, when he said, Lord, you establish peace for us. God does it. And all that we have accomplished, you have done it for us. When we get tangled up with Jesus, he puts our broken lives back together. Can I get an amen from anybody in the house? That's why, by the way, that's why Palm Sunday is such a joyful day. That's why we're celebrating. We're celebrating that King Jesus has come into our lives and he's made not just the world out there right, but he's making our world right as well. But I want to say to you this this morning, that for all of the joy and the celebration of Palm Sunday, there's also this darkness, like a cloud that hangs over Palm Sunday. As you read on in the narrative, Luke says this, as he approached the city and he, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now, he says, it's hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus approaches the city and he weeps. Why does Jesus weep? What is Jesus heartbroken over? Jesus knows. This is the reason that Jesus weeps. Jesus knows that this way of peace that he has been offering, this way by which Israel can be made right and the world can come right again, this way that he has been holding out before him, he knows that that way will be rejected by Jerusalem and therefore the house of Israel will fall. And so he looks into the future and he predicts this fall of Jerusalem, that there's going to come a day when your enemies are going to come and build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in. Your children will be dashed to the ground. The stones will be ripped apart because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. And it's not a threat, by the way. It's not Jesus going, well, you know, if you don't listen to me, something bad going to happen to you. We're going to come and whack you. That's not it at all. Jesus is saying, what I'm offering you is the only way by which your world can come right. There is no other peace outside of God. And so if we reject the peace that God offers, there aren't inferior versions of peace. There is only the falling apart of our lives. If we reject life, we get death. If we reject light, we get darkness. If we reject God's peace, what we get is anti-peace. We get the falling apart of our lives. And this, by the way, is exactly what happened. Forty Passovers later, a group of Jews in Jerusalem decided to stage a revolt against the Roman occupying power. And that revolt all of a sudden spilled out into the rest of the city. And remember, half a million people, maybe more, are there in the city and all of a sudden this revolt spills out and the Romans did not tolerate dissent. And so all of a sudden they've got legions of Roman armies come and the Roman armies created embankments against Jerusalem five months long. 
Five months long, the history writers tell us they laid siege to the city, choked off its water supplies and its food supplies until all of a sudden the city, inside the city, there was cannibalism, rank chaos. Finally, they broke through the wall, tore it down, set fire to the temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian of the era, estimates that as many as a million Jewish people died. Tens of thousands of them deported into slavery, taken captive into other countries, the end of an era in Jerusalem. And you, some of you that are Bible readers, maybe you've read the book of Lamentations before. This book that just laments the destruction of Jerusalem back in the 6th century B.C. What happened there in 70 A.D., so 500, 600 years later, was very much what, what happened in the book of Lamentations. And the prophet Jeremiah, he looks again to the Lord and he goes, God... Will you ever put this back together again? Will you ever rebuild the temple? And the Lord did rebuild the temple. The difference here is that this temple, the house of Jerusalem, is never rebuilt again. That revolt, that rejection of the offer of peace led to the destruction of the city. And do you know what the worst part of all of it was? It was all completely unnecessary. There was no reason why Jerusalem had to fall. But Jesus had told them, the Sermon on the Mount, we just finished reading the Sermon on the Mount, preaching through it. Jesus had told them in the Sermon on the Mount to love their enemies and pray for those who persecuted them. Jesus had told them, you don't need to fret for your future because God is taking care of you. Your enemies out there, those people that you feel like are oppressing you, God's got that under control You don't need to take matters in your own hands. You don't need to fight for your own rights. You don't need to throw off the occupying power because God loves the righteous. God is the one who establishes justice. God's the one who overthrows the wicked in God's world. And if you just give him time, if you'll just wait, he'll do it for you. He offered it to them. And they didn't trust it. And they took matters into their own hands. And the city collapsed which is why Jesus is weeping. And I want to say this to you this morning, that as a pastor, nothing, literally nothing, breaks my heart more than this. The unnecessary pain and the self-inflicted wounds we cause ourselves Because Jesus holds out the offer of life to us, the way of peace to us, and we keep saying no to the way. I hate that with every fiber of my being, but I encounter it all the time. I remember sitting with a guy years ago. We'd been married for a bunch of years, had a whole brood of kids, and we had gotten to know each other over the course of a couple years. And I remember sitting with him over lunch one day, And he's sitting in front of me and he goes, Andrew, I've recently come to grips with the fact that there's some really significant trauma in my past. And there's this stuff in me that all of a sudden is coming to the surface. And I'm starting to come to grips with it. I'm starting to do business with it. But it's also causing me a lot of pressure inside. And it's changing the way now that I think about my marriage and my family and all of that. And I honestly feel like I just need to get out. It's time for me to exit my marriage. It's time for me to exit my family life. I think actually I need to go over here and start this other thing. What do you think about that? And I said to him, man, trauma from the past, 
I get that. And I know what that's like. I know what that's like to have stuff that's roiling inside of you. That's making, it feel, making you feel like you cannot any longer occupy the space that you're in. Where everything in you is just like, I've got to run for the hills. I've got to get somewhere else. I mean, the psalmist said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I'd fly away and be at rest. Every one of you in this room has felt that way at some certain points in your life. Where it's like, I just got to get out of here. And I said to him, man, I get that. But there is a way to do this that will actually leave your life intact and leave you better for it. If you just give us as your community, the people that love you, a chance to walk alongside you and to do this with you, if you just please, I remember saying to him, I said, tap the brakes, man. Before you do anything crazy, before you make any dramatic changes, would you give us all, your family, your wife, your kids, all of us, give us a chance to get up to speed with you so that we can walk alongside you. This doesn't have to end the way that you think it's going to end. Okay, okay, okay. And I'll never forget it. Within two weeks, you know, he's agreeing with me over the table. Maybe that's just what happens when you're sitting with pastors or something. You go, okay. Two weeks later, he pulled the ripcord on everything, made a disastrous mess of his marriage and his family. And all of a sudden, they're coming to us, his wife and his kids. We don't know what to do. And can you help us? And we're not sure if we're going to be able to make the mortgage payments and all of that. And here we are picking up the pieces and he's alienated from his family and so confused in his mind and then accusing us of doing evil things as we're trying to take care of his family. It's just awful. And I remember in the midst of that whole tragedy, I wasn't mad at him. I just remember weeping for him. And the thought that just wouldn't leave me alone was like, man, it didn't have to be that way. There's like a better way for it to go. Moses says to the people of God in the Old Testament, See, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then as if it needed to be said at all, Moses goes, so please choose life. But we keep thinking that we can do it better than God. And we keep making a mess of everything. And a dozen times a week as a pastor, I, I have this moment I think about marriages. I think about families. I think about individuals. I go like, why are you, why are you doing that? <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to end like that. I think, I think this about our society. But I look out at the craziness of the moment that we live in. Where our country is going. Where our communities are going. The way that the conversation in our country is flowing and the crazy stuff that we're saying to one another and the crazy stuff that we're teaching our kids and the crazy stuff that we're advocating in our society and we're hurting ourselves and destroying ourselves and then we're going, we don't get why life is so awful and so miserable. And I go, why are you, why are we doing this to ourselves? I thought it this past week. Audrey Hale in Nashville walked into a school Six adults dead, or three adults dead, six, or three kids dead. And like, here we are again. And the conversation happens all over again, you know. Why is this happening in our country? What's wrong with us, you know? What are we going to do to fix it? And this is always the moment when the very simplistic solutions always come to the surface, Right? 
well, you know, this is really an evidence of this. And if we just fix this thing, then this thing will go away. Well, you know, if we just make this tiny mental adjustment. Well, you know, if we just, then we will. And I want to just say to you as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, I reject if we just, then we will thinking all the way down. The temptation that we have to take complex things and reduce them to silver bullet solutions, I think that that is dishonoring in every way. And usually when we reduce them to that thing, it's because it happens to be our pet issue. That's the thing that we happen to care about the most. And it doesn't matter if you're on the right or on the left of this issue. I don't care. These are complex things. But if you pay attention to these moments, you will see that there are common threads. And one of the things that has come out this week, folks who were close to Audrey Hale, one of the things that they have said, I've heard this a number of different places, is that one of the things that they said about her in the year or so leading up to this tragedy was that they said about Audrey Hale that she had clearly been in anguish over the past year. Her social media posts, things that she said to friends and people close to her, Audrey had been in pain, deep pain, pain that was not being dealt with in the right way. And one spiritual writer, one author says, and I think this is worth just storing in the back of your mind because this is deep wisdom here. He says that pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. That when there's anguish and brokenness and hurt going on in us, that's not dealt with in the right way. If it's not transformed, if it's not metabolized into something useful, it'll become something toxic and harmful and destructive. And knowing that about Audrey, that connects some dots for me. Because I'm convinced, I've been watching this now for almost 20 years as a pastor, I am convinced that the great crazinesses of our lives are almost always driven by pain. Very few people, maybe nobody just wakes up in the morning and goes, well, I'm just going to throw a grenade into everything. We're trying to answer some ache that's going on in our own hearts. There's pain that's not been transformed. And pain that's not been transformed, you know what happens to it? It gives rise to fear. And you know what happens in the midst of fear? It gives rise to irrational thinking. And then all of a sudden we have actions that hurt other people. This is the story of the human race. It's what happened with the Jews of Jesus' day. There was the pain, the memory of being oppressed and the experience of being oppressed by the Romans. And so instead of offering that up to God, God, would you help us? God, would you look out for us? God, we're slaves in our own land and we don't want it to be this way. But we're afraid that if we take matters into our own hands, that the warnings of the prophets and the warning of the Messiah will come true, that this city will be destroyed. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Please help us. And over and over again in Israel's past, God had always come to their aid. He did it in Egypt. That's what the Exodus was. They were powerless to help themselves. And so instead of striking out at their oppressors, they offered their pain to God and it was transformed into praise and God entered in in liberation This is our story. We have a choice about what to do with the great agonies of our lives. Will we offer them up to God or will we take matters into our own hands 
and try to bring the kingdom ourselves. And I want to say to you this morning that any kingdom that you can establish in your own power outside of the activity of God is not a kingdom that you would want anyway. Any salvation that you could establish by yourself outside of the salvation of God, it's not a salvation that's ever going to last. It'll always come crashing down on your head. This is the mess of the human situation. And do you know what I love about Jesus? That in the midst of all this mess and all this confusion and all of this chaos, do you know what he does? He rides into our lives, not with condemnation, He rides into our lives, not with shame. He rides into our lives, not heaping guilt or excess burdens on us. He comes into our lives and he says to us, don't be afraid. I am not just your Messiah. I am your God. I made you. I love you. And even to your old age and your gray hairs, I'm the one who is carrying you and sustaining you and will take you all the way through to the kingdom of God. And I am competent to handle anything that you can throw at me. Would you just give it to me? And that's the question. Will we give it to Jesus? The choice is ours. Would you stand? You know what to to do, church. Give it to God. Give it to God. You know the places where you've been tempted to establish the kingdom by yourself. Give it to God. You know the places in your life are hurt and trauma and abuse, fear. All of it is just driving you into places that you don't want to go, but you almost feel helpless. Like, oh, I'm going to inevitably do this. Give it to God. You know what it is for you. I'm saying to you this morning, Jesus can handle it. And so Jesus, we're here before you. We thank you that you're not a God who's distant, you're a God who's near. You're the one Isaiah said, surely he has taken up our sorrows. He's borne our sufferings. He's the man of sorrow and suffering. He's familiar with our grief. You know what it's like. And you don't just sympathize to us. You don't just relate to us. But you take it, you carry it all. And so we surrender it to you this morning. We surrender it all to you, knowing that you're competent, you're willing, you're able, you can handle it. And we remember before you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it. And you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. 
God who enters into our stuff, the God who took a body, the God who occupies the space of the bread and the cup to make us whole. We come before you, surrendering the pain of our lives and the sin of our lives, surrendering before you our whole humanity and taking the blessing of your own life that you give to us. What an exchange. How great this salvation is that you offer us. So come, we pray. Occupy this moment. Occupy these elements. Occupy our experience of them. So that this moment might become for us a real participation in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant it, we pray. In Jesus' name. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward this morning to serve communion. If you're new with us, your first time with us this morning, we exit towards the center aisle and then come up. As you come forward, the server will put a cracker in your hand. You'll dip it in the cup and take it as you head back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, I say to you, these are the gifts of God and they're given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.